You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm here today with Fernanda Piri, who is a professor of law and anthropology, or an anthropologist who's a professor of law at uh, University of Oxford. She's also the author of many books, including one called Anthropology of Law, one called Legalism, Community and Justice, Peace and Conflict in Ladakh in India, and most recently this magnum opus of sorts called The Rule of Laws, a 4,000-year quest to order the world. Welcome, Fernanda. Thank you. This idea of anthropology of law, it's really kind of fascinating. Sometimes we talk about law and anthropology in law schools. But I think what you're trying to do is you're trying to carve out a, a middle ground between the two conventional views of law, right? So for people in the field of law, we tend to think of law as it's an instrument of the state, right? Which is designed to order things, to resolve conflicts and so forth. But anthropologists, they tend to see kind of law everywhere, right? So, you know, you don't need to have any kind of formal system. It's custom. It's, it's norms. It's the way that people kind of order the world. And I remember, I mean, I think everyone remembers their first encounter with Clifford Geertz, right? I mean, it's kind of like, a, I don't know, it's one of those things where, you know, you read this and as an historian, when I read Clifford Geertz, it really opened my eyes. And, you know, he has this view. I mean, he's sort of the prototypical anthropologist. He has this view that laws just describe the world in, in a judgmental way right? And so anything which does that is going to be considered part of law. But, but I think you're, you're trying to argue that, well, you know, law is actually something more specific, right? It's not just any old custom. It's, it's a particular type of custom, but it's, it, it doesn't necessarily require this, you know, centralized system of state power. So what is the difference between, you know, law and just the customs that we all seem to adhere to and agree upon. Well, I think you're absolutely right the way you've um, just described it and described the problem as well of those who look at law on the one hand as an instrument of the state and on the other hand as seeing social norms in general as law. And the problem with that is that almost everything becomes law and law is just social order. And of course, that's very interesting, but it loses the sense of there being anything specific about law. And what I think is specific is it's a certain style of making norms and rules, in particular making them explicit. So there are, where I did my first field work in, in the village in Ladakh, which is subject to that book, you mentioned peace and conflict in Ladakh. Nothing was written down, no village constitution. When they resolved conflicts, they didn't write anything down afterwards, but they all knew we know what we do, what's right and what's wrong, and so on and so on. So it was all implicit. It was well known, but it was implicit. Other villages, urban centres, kingdoms, empire states, make law in a more um, deliberate way. They write things down. They create rules. They carve them on stones. They, they put them in manuscripts. They make them explicit. And once they do that, they have a sort of objective quality. They can be referred to. They're up there for people to see, for people to read. And that's something different about those sorts of rules. So it's so it's a sort of it's the form of the rather than the content which makes a difference. And so 
you know, the fact is that our concept of law is very vague. The way we use it in everyday language, it covers all sorts of things. It covers, you know, processes. Of, you know, we go to the law to, to resolve our disputes. We talk about law in general ways as, oh, the laws of, you know, these people meaning the sort of customs. We talk about laws that are on the books. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those words that's really slippery. <laughs> so, you know, as an anthropologist and a historian, I'm interested in finding a category of forms that's sort of more specific, there's something to look at, which is might be similar, which can be compared across societies. So focusing on the, on the form, the explicit nature of rules, I think brings into focus a whole set of phenomena that you know, some societies make, but not all. And people make for different reasons and they invest with different sorts of um, significance. So it takes us beyond the state, to examine different types of societies and compare them, but it draws our attention to something more specific than just social norms in general. Mm-hmm. Now, you didn't spend a lot of time on the ancient Greeks, right? You know, you jumped into the Romans, but when I studied them, I, I got the sense that they used this term, you know, nomos to include pretty much anything that was kind of man-made, right? Or anything that reflected the, the human imprint on the world. And, and of course that included what we would consider law, but it seems like they don't necessarily consider it in all worlds to be a man-made phenomenon, right? It seems to be something that is discovered rather than made for, for some of these societies. Is it important that it be something that's consciously constructed by the society? Yes, that's a good point. And so a lot of people who do consciously construct their laws also attribute them to to God, to the cosmos, to ancient tradition. So for example, the Islamic legal system, it's, it's really a human's attempt to make clear God's path to the world. So it's attributed ultimately to God, although it's up to human beings to sort of you know, write it down and try and make it. In the Hindu legal system, the laws, the texts are supposed to reflect the cosmology, the dharma. And even the common law is you know, still thought of as ancient tradition. You know, the judges are, are declaring what the law is, they're not making it, at least in theory. So often there's that sort of ideology of, of law being out there having ancient or divine or cosmological origins, even if it is written down. And so, of course, the, you know, the, the ancient Greek example is a really mind-bending one. I've never really got my mind, mind around it properly. And I think I, I, even the specialists find it hard to really understand what the ancient Greeks were doing and what the, the way they invested meaning in their laws, partly because the sources are just so, so, so scattered. But yes, I think their, their sense of nomos was, was more than what we would generally call law. But I mean, in the modern world, we, we have sort of a, a clear distinction between the domain of law and the domain of what we might think of as morality or, you know, self-improvement or virtue, right ways of living. But it seems like a lot of the legal systems had their origins more in right way of living. You know, this is how you are supposed to behave. Right? Then other legal systems seem to have more of the opposite approach where it's really this is what you need to do because this is what the state needs for you to do in order to maintain their power, right? But today in modern's world, it seems like everybody has adopted this more Western view of the law, which which separates out these different domains. 
Exactly. And you're absolutely right. It's very much a modern phenomenon, something on the whole associated with the growth of the state that we separate out law and morality and law and religion as well. And really to draw those distinctions hardly makes sense in the Islamic world, for example. So, of course, Islamic law is still very much alive and well in the modern world, but it's itself been sort of relegated to a realm separate from the, the law of the state. So, so in the Islamic world, well, in the Hindu world as well, there are these people who are jurists or legal experts, and they're often sort of in conflict with the state. Now, look, I, I'm a lawyer, and I've, I've been in the English Anglo-American tradition. We still have this idea of the bar, right? And oftentimes the bar kind of insulates us from the state. I mean, this is kind of de Tocqueville's idea where they're agents of the court, but they're also kind of a buffer between people and the state. And it seems like in the Hindu tradition and in the Islamic tradition, there have always been these people who are defining the law and they don't necessarily have any connection to the the rulers. Exactly. And that phenomenon is a feature of a large majority of the legal systems that somehow the legal experts are separate from the power holders. And there's something I was a little bit surprised about when I was writing the book at just just how often you find that in almost every example you come across. And and you're right, it's it's particularly explicit in the Hindu and the Muslim worlds where there are religious legal experts who are very clearly distinct from the power holders. I mean, it's important to keep themselves apart, sort of morally different or morally superior in the Hindu world. And, you know, but in, in Rome itself, there were the jurists who were, who were separate from, you know, the power holders. They were more integrated. And that's, as you say, is the basis of the idea of the separation of powers from, between the judiciary on the one hand and the executive and the legislature on the other. Now, how do these legal systems that have origins outside of the day-to-day business of organizing society, you know, how do they ultimately wind up grappling with the key issues, right? I think I was reading, you said in the Chinese legal system, the only way to get some kind of action was to have a crime, right? And, you know, most of our legal business as lawyers in today's world is civil law, right? You know, you got contract disputes and and, uh, that sort of thing. So if the legal system's all about crimes against the state, how do you go about doing your ordinary business? And similarly, right, in these Islamic systems, I mean, you know, there's not, the Sharia seems originally to be pretty vague on issues of contract enforcement and and the day-to-day that, that lawyers spend all their time doing. I mean, do they just have to use, you know, legal fictions? Do you have to kind of rummage around in inside the, the law to try and find something that's that's relevant? Well, most societies have got ways of resolving disputes outside the law. And it's what, you know, my colleagues in sociological studies, law and society, spend a lot of time studying forms of mediation, conciliation, alternative dispute resolution. It's all over the place, even in a contemporary society. And it's sort of the fiction of the modern state that it's really in charge of all disputes and that law covers everything. No, it doesn't and it never has done. So people have always found ways of sorting out disputes. And quite often they're quite similar. If you look back in time, there are forms of mediation, which are quite similar to, to ones that happen in the contemporary world. I mean, we had the law merchant, we had the, with the pie powder courts, right? Which were, I guess they, they were sort of almost more like arbitration 
organizations than agents of the state, right? Sure. And they were interesting because they were a sort of crossover between local forms of mediation and state law. So this is medieval England and the central courts, the king's courts are developing their institutions, their structures, their laws, they're getting more elaborate. But they're really places to go if you're fairly wealthy or if you've got certain types of disputes, you know, they start off really dealing with land disputes, land issues. That's what the, you know, the common law is supposed to be about, a sort of a single sort of set of rules about the land ownership. And so these more local forms of mediation, you know, the pipe powder courts in the markets, in the local markets, or the tin miners courts in Cornwall, or the admiralty courts where there's, you know, the fishermen on the Thames, and, you know, all these, all these very local types of institutions where people really knew what the issues were and, and what the problems, how problems could be dealt with. Those types of courts sort of gradually took on some of the trappings of the central court, you know, the procedures. They they started using juries. They started demanding the sorts of sort of documents and sorts of processes that the king's courts did. So there was a sort of coming together of, you know, local and central. And gradually, of course, the central systems sort of took over everything to assume jurisdiction for everything. But that element of sort of copying what was going on in the central courts was probably common to other parts of the world. It's just particularly visible in, in the scholarship on, on medieval England. Well, I mean, that seems to be a trend that we see throughout all of these societies is this kind of unification, right? I mean, you know, conflicts of laws is something we all study, but it kind of only pops up in certain intra-jurisdictional disputes, right? Like, I remember I took a, a course in law school where it was all about international civil litigation and, oh yeah, you got to figure out like who's got jurisdiction and so forth. But for the most part, you know, we have a unified legal system within, at least within certain geographies. And so the Stannery Court, which I had never heard of the Stannery Court before I hear a book, right? the whole court system for tin miners, right? Right out loud. And the Admiralty Court, they all kind of became unified with the single legal system, but also like the, the courts that the feudal lords would have. I mean, they would pretty much resolve all of these local disputes. Does the kind of convergence around a single unified legal system, is that just a product of the greater integration of the economy. If you're a peasant and you never leave one square mile, like why would you ever need anything more than the Lord's court? Is it more about like, we've got all these interdependencies or is it just some kind of rule of legal progress that is going on? I think it's, well, it it might be all of those things in certain cases. I think very often that it's about what's going on at the center and whether the people, there's anyone with a the power, the influence to sort of impose their sort of law on a wider field. So very often this is political. You know, it's what kings do when they want to establish their jurisdiction. Um, It's what the Mesopotamian kings were doing 4,000 years ago. They were sort of creating these lawstones, writing out laws, because they wanted to consolidate, you know, the lands that they'd conquered. They wanted to persuade the people that, you know, to to give their loyalties to the king. So here are the laws, you know, come to me and I'll give you justice sort of thing. So it's about establishing their power and authority. And so very often political rulers will set up and sponsor legal systems, even if they have a separate judiciary, nevertheless, it's part of a sort of state building, if you like. But it's not just the political rulers. It's also done for religious reasons in particular. So the great Hindu, Jewish, Islamic legal systems had sort of 
expansive unifying aims as well, but they weren't territorial. They were trying to create communities of adherents to, to the doctrine, to, you know, to the religion, who would all follow the same moral rules, who would all be able to go to their local Brahmins or Muftis or, um, or the local Jewish courts and receive the same sort of justice. So they're sort of unifying projects, but some are political, some are more religious. So not only did they have sort of different courts and different legal systems for different domains, like stuff that happened on the ocean and stuff that happened in the tin mines, but it would also depend on kind of who you were. I mean, at one point, if you were, say, a, um, a Jew in a uh, Islamic country, you know, you would be subject to Jewish law, right? And if you were a priest, you'd be subject to church law and so forth. So why don't we see that anymore? I mean, there are, I guess there are some, I think there in the United States, there are Native American legal jurisdictions for certain Native Americans. But even in some Western countries in Europe, right, they recognize Islamic law for certain family uh, relationships, right? Exactly. And I think it's pro- part of the problem is that the modern state tends to claim jurisdiction over everything. And we think that there must be a single legal system. I mean, that's the ideology for the modern state. And that's why conflict laws is a problem, that there ought to be a single legal system. So you have certainty. And of course, you can see the sense of that. You know, if you've got an integrated political structure, it makes sense that everyone follows the same rules, that everybody knows what those rules are, that, that conflicts are minimised. But that's a very modern phenomenon. You go back to the Middle Ages, as you said, and really people had no problem imagining they lived in a world where, you know, they were Jewish merchants in Cairo and they went to their local synagogue and all sorts of conflicts were sorted out just locally. But then they traded with merchants, you know, possibly other Jewish merchants in other parts sides of the Mediterranean. So again, they followed Jewish laws, but if there was a problem there, they might send off a petition to the legal expert in Baghdad to find an answer, you know, and, and the answer would come back <laughs> all those miles away. At the same time, they were subject to you know, the Mamluks or whoever was in power in Egypt at the time, which was Islamic regime. And so if they had problems with neighbors who weren't Jewish, they would have to go to the Islamic courts. And maybe there was a Christian community as there, so there'd be other ways of, of sorting things out there. So I'm not saying there wasn't a problem. There often were problems with these sort of overlapping jurisdictions, but it was much more accepted as, as the norm. So yes, we, we tend to regard it as a bit of a sort of exception now that, oh, yes, the Jews and the Muslims have got their own Sharia courts for their family problems. And so there's sort of little spaces being carved out for them to do that. But then if we think about the transnational realm, you know, if you go off and you're in international finance or international trade and you've got disputes with people from Europe or China or whatever, there are all sorts of international sort of treaties and schemes and principles, international principles about finance and so on, arbitration, and people go off there. They just accept that that's where they need to go rather than national courts. Choice of law, choice of forum, right? So, you know, you get into a contract, you're like, I want to have Swiss law in a London court or whatever, right? You You can do that stuff now. But I think you talk a bit about colonialism, right? And and I think the, the original idea 
that many of the colonial powers had, including the English, was, you know, we're, we're just going to come in and we're going to apply English law to all the English people. We don't have the, the infrastructure to get involved in, in all these local disputes. And, and so the idea was just to leave everything alone. But it's, it seems like almost unintentionally and inadvertently, the colonial law wound up taking over everything. I mean, one possibility is that if a colonial power shows up with electricity, it's going to spread. I mean, it's, you know, better technology, better adapted to the modern world. But, it, you know, another story is, is just that you can't have these conflicts and ultimately the more powerful jurist is going to drive out the other. And so it's driven by state power. Is, and that, that state power story could have also be driven by the successors to the colonialists, right? They, they also are interested in maximizing state power. So is it, is it sort of a state power story or is it more like a technology story? Can we think in terms of legal technology and kind of more sophisticated legal technology? Is there a progress story here that, that we could look at? <laughs> yeah, I think progress is a very difficult word, dangerous word to use because, you know, that's so much the way that, you know, the story of law and progress and modernity is told, you know, it's, everything is, is much better. And that's a story that the colonialists told as well. You know, they were bringing enlightenment and civilization. Within anthropology, I know it's a very contested notion, right? Yeah, exactly. And the fact was that, you know, up until, you know, the the 16th, 17th centuries, the Eastern legal systems were way more sophisticated than anything in Europe. It's just the colonials conveniently forgot about that when they decided to march into, you know, India and Indonesia and Africa. Let's set aside the idea of progress. But I think you're right that it's that colonialism, where well, it's a multifaceted story anyway. But in legal terms, there was certainly in part the imposition of centralized standards. So the colonialists went around setting up courts everywhere and they expected a lot of local conflicts to come to those courts. So they thought they could apply Indian law or African law or whatever. And they, they tried in lots of cases to work out what it was to write it down, but they did a pretty bad job on the whole. So in effect they instituted a very new legal system. But at the same time, a lot of the indigenous, particularly the indigenous elites, got drawn into the colonial system, of course, and it was partly deliberate. You know, that's, that's the way colonialism unfolds. Of course, you need to co-opt, particularly the, the local power holders. So they got jobs within the system or within the new economy and found it useful to use the new courts, the new laws. So it's partly about new types of economy, new types of markets, new types of landholding, which then necessitate or make new types of laws or make them more useful. So particularly in Africa, there was that tension between communal forms of landholding, which were very widespread and the more individualistic forms of landholding that the colonialists thought would just had to be introduced, or at least even if not always individualistic, at least more certain, more specified. Um, and once that system had been imposed, as it generally was, it became very difficult to continue to operate with the more communal forms of landholding, you know, kin-related um, land ownership. So there was a lot of undermining of existing systems, you know, economic and social systems, which then made 
people encouraged people to turn to these new courts for, for address and for problems. Yeah, not a happy story. Well, I remember, you know, you talk about uh, Hastings, right? And, you know, some people were really trying to understand the local language, the local courts and cultures. But at the end of the day, most of the colonialists would just, to the extent that they did immerse themselves in it, they would tend to translate it back into terms that they could understand. And so it kind of wound up getting distorted. And I'm wondering, I mean, the anthropological project is one where you really try to situate yourself within the culture. And I mean, this seems like a very difficult thing to do, right? I mean, you went to Ladakh, you've been to Tibet, you talk about the, the Goloks and, and, you know, the Yemenis and the Dagestanis. I mean, how well can you really understand something that is that distant and that, that remote? Do you have to develop the capacity to kind of put blinders on the frameworks that you bring to the table? Or do you necessarily remain somewhat detached as an anthropologist? Well, you're right. It's, it's a difficult and inevitably imperfect process. But our modern anthropology has developed uh, the sort of methods which we feel can bring us as close as we can to that type of understanding from the inside. And it's partly going in with the right attitude. You, know, you want to try to understand things from the inside. You want to almost get inside other people's heads and work out how they see the world, how they make sense of things around them. And it's hard because all the time we go out to a place we don't know. We maybe don't know the language. You know, language learning is vitally important so we can listen to what people are saying, even if they're not talking to us. We don't rely on translators. We get the nuance um, and of course, that takes an enormous amount of time. Now, that's why typically people doing a PhD in anthropology will spend a year somewhere to learn the language, to, to build up trust so that people talk to them about things which they might not otherwise talk to strangers about. In those sorts of ways, we get as close as we can to the people, to their problems, to the way they think, to the way they see the world. And of course, it's only ever imperfect. But... You know, we have to try. We have to do as far as go as far as we can. But then, when we're trying to to work out what it all means, to write up our thesis or our book, or to enter into conversation with other people to tell them what we've what we've seen, all the time, again, we have to be careful about the words we're using because then we become the translators. How can I translate what I what I saw, what I understood, into terms that will make sense to other people? You know? just translating into a different language, the language you're writing in for a start. So that's sort of the ideal basis for this type of exploration. And of course, it, it's difficult for sure working with historical materials. But to some extent, we have to do more guesswork. And, and our historian colleagues always look at us and say, oh, but it's so easy for you, because if you're trying to understand what people do, you just ask them. And of course, it's never as simple as that. You ask people, oh, and very often they'll just go, why are you asking that question? You know, people are often bad at explaining things. They just do naturally. They have to try and find ways of getting at truth, you know, um, even if we're anthropologists. In the same ways, historians have to try and interpret their material. So why do people write like this? What were they trying to do? And it's partly about asking the right questions, trying to put yourself in the mind of the, the people who wrote those laws or that document or had that dispute? Why were they talking in, in, using that language? Why did this seem important? So yes, it's always imperfect, but you know we have to do the best we can. 
Well, of course, the difference between going to, say, Ladakh and talking to people there and doing this historical anthropology is that when you do the historical research, you're limited to the kind of written records to some degree. Do you think that distorts our historical perspective, the fact that we overweight the, the legal aspects of it? I mean, you, you mentioned that like Egypt and the Aztecs and the Incas, I mean, they didn't have any written law. I mean, did they have law if they didn't have written law? Or, you know, how, how can we understand what that was like? I mean, do we just sort of infer? How do we get a sense of what was going on in those societies? Well, you're absolutely right. It, it's limiting. It's very limiting in terms of what we can then do. So hence ancient Greece being such a puzzle, you know, the, the sources make it just difficult for us to work out what was going on. Whereas in other cases, but a lot more was written. We've got more to, more to work with. But I think the case of Egypt and you know, the Aztecs and the Incas is a bit different. I mean, the Aztecs and Incas are frustrating for historians because so much was destroyed in the, you know, the, the colonial encounter, the Spanish occupation, and not a lot was reduced to writing anyway. Egypt is different. There were you know, lots of records from Egypt. You know, they had sophisticated writing systems. But there they seem to have, as it were, chosen not to make laws. And certainly from about the second millennium BC onwards, they were in contact with Mesopotamia, where they'd also developed writing and developed laws and um, legal codes. So it's almost as if the Egyptians just chose to continue to run their society in a different way unless we suddenly discover a whole lot of laws that we didn't know existed in Egypt, I think we have to analyze that as a, you know, an effective, powerful, sophisticated administration that nevertheless chose not to organize itself in terms of explicit rules. You know, there were orders, there were tax systems, there were power structures, but nobody wanted to create these explicit sets of laws. Now, the entire world is governed more or less by what we would call kind of Western legal systems, even India and, and China, right? The ones that have kind of alternative legal traditions. And if you trace that all the way back, I mean, I think you, you trace it all the way back to Hammurabi, right? So really, you know, the Western legal tradition has its origins in Mesopotamia. And what is, what is unique about it, right? What is it about the Chinese and the Indian and the Islamic? I mean, I guess we still have, even in the Islamic world, they still have, right, legal codes, which are Western legal codes superimposed on top of, of Sharia law. But what is, I mean, I guess Saudi Arabia is a little bit different. I mean, they may not have adopted that much of the Western legal system. What would it be about that Roman tradition that was unique? There is nothing intrinsically superior I don't think, about the tradition that flowed from Mesopotamia. And it went through so many iterations. You know, it inspired the Jewish tradition. You know, the writer of the Old Testament undoubtedly drew on precedence from Mesopotamia. And that was a very different system. You know, Mesopotamian system was, it was royal laws. It was the laws of the rulers. And the Israelites took, took that, took inspiration from that, and made laws for a dispersed nation, which wasn't then centrally organized after the fall of the um, early Israelite kingdoms. And then that tradition in turn inspired the Islamic system. Again, a religious-based, not politically-based system. 
while at the same time it's about Rome, as you say, which then formed the basis for what was very influential in the legal systems that developed in Europe. So that tradition sort of took many, many twists and turns and went off in lots of different directions. And meanwhile, the Indian and the Chinese were developing in their own ways in their own, in their own regions. So they were often overlapping, you know, when the Mughals came into India, there was there was a, a form of the Islamic law among certain sections of society, whereas the, you know, the Hindu kings and the Hindu communities were doing their own thing with their own laws. It's really a quirk of fate, chance or geopolitics, has meant that traditions that developed in Europe, which were successors to the Roman and ultimately the Mesopotamian system, those systems should have come to dominate the world. And it's largely through the rise of the nation state, modernity, colonialism. So it's partly about imposition, it's partly about copying. I don't think you could have gone back yeah. 2,000 years and said, oh, well, this is the one. You know, for a long time, the most sophisticated legal system in the world was in China. And it lasted about 2,000 years. In, you know, it came and went with different dynasties. But it was pretty solid, pretty complex, pretty effective for the different successive Chinese dynasties and governing vast land and number of people. You know, you'd have probably put your money on China. I like this term you said, what they, the Chinese legal folks thought of the Chinese law like a net. The holes in the net needed to get bigger or, or smaller depending on the, the specifics. Uh, I, thought, I love that. So it really meant that there's quite a bit of discretion in the jurists as to how to apply the, the, the legal principles. Exactly. I mean, there were, there, were, there were realists about what law could do and what it couldn't do. If you make too many, too many laws and the holes are too small, then people have got no room to maneuver and they won't obey the law anymore. If it's too big, then people will find ways of avoiding the law. I agree, it's a nice, it's a nice image. But it, it does give the sense, doesn't it, that law was there to sort of control. You know, it was, a, it was an instrument of the state. And I think that's very much the way the Chinese saw their laws as something which they could manipulate to control their people, their territory. When you take this universal approach and you zoom out, a lot of the European legal systems kind of merge together. But when you get back down to the ground in the world that, you know, you and I both live in, then the English exceptionalism kind of it comes to the fore. And, and I, I was sort of schooled in the English exceptionalism tradition and Pollock and Maitland, you know, that was my Bible for a while. And a lot of people still continue to think of the English legal tradition as, as unique and distinct even from the other European legal traditions. Does it deserve to be considered kind of unique? Or, or is it just a different flavor of this Western tradition of, of jurisprudence? Well, I suppose I haven't been brought up in the English legal tradition myself and practiced at the bar for a while. I ought to say, yes, absolutely. It's, it's a sort of wonderful, historic, sophisticated, well-adapted legal system that you know, really ought to be rolled out of the whole world. And of course, there is a lot to be said for it. It, it has developed organically. It's... The fact that it's not based on, you know, sort of foundational legal codes maybe means it's more adaptable. But really, that's a, that's a specialist area of law, which my colleagues here in the faculty know a lot more about than I do. And taking, taking a, a, a more sort of global perspective, they very quickly merge into one you know, as instruments of the state, they, the civil and the common law system really operate in very similar sorts of ways. 
and the distinctions between them, you know, important though they are, do tend to fade when we start to look at the very many other types of laws there are around the world. Well, and, and I think that when people talk about kind of judge-made law and case law, I mean, it doesn't seem that it's that unique. I mean, the distinction might be overrated. You talk about some of the early legal systems where when it was written down, it wasn't written down in the form of general principles sometimes. You just have these stories, right, where, you know, some guy came in and he had a cow and then he did this and that was the law. And then everybody tries to figure out how do you apply that story to the situation at hand? Is that a different type of legal reasoning, kind of more story-based, case-based, as opposed to, you know, if you injure a person in this way, you, you know, you pay this penalty, boom, full stop. Yes, I, I suppose I suppose the case-based legal reasoning sort of approximates or gradually approximates in the common law system to the reasoning which is based on written laws, on legislation, for example. So, you know, through through precedent, you know, one judge will say is what the, the rule was in this previous case was X. And so then the people writing the textbooks come down and they say, oh, here we are. This is what the law is, which you're going to strap for the cases. It becomes almost like a bit of legislation. I think the sort of the judge-based reasoning probably is more widespread than it seems. It seemed to me looking at Hammurabi's code, for example, it looks like a bit of legislation. It's written up there. It's fixed. It's not work in progress, as it were. But it does reflect individual cases. And so... And it was very specific and it covered some topics, it didn't cover other topics. So, you know, the question is, well, why was this why was this written up if it was any sort of partial like that? So I think the, the for people to use it at all, it must they must have approached it in the sort of the way that you approach precedent. You know, oh well, this is what the rule says, that sort of case. So by analogy, it must be right to do this in this case. Or, well, my case is a little bit different, so I'm going to do something a little bit different. So, I, yes, I do think that common law standard reasoning, we have to sort of read into the way in which people used quite a lot of different laws throughout history. You spend a whole chapter on trial by battle and you know, all this sort of stuff. And it seemed to be quite common that you would resolve a dispute by getting into a, I don't know, a duel or you know, a fight. I mean, to an outsider, if, if you're not raised in that tradition, it just seems absurd. I just saw The Crucible recently, and, and I think in, in the, one of the scenes, they talk about this guy who they just pressed with stones, right? you know, and, and yet that kind of persisted for long periods of time before it was kind of abolished. I mean, some would argue that today it's, it's kind of similar, like whoever can spend the most on a lawyer, you know, is, gonna, is likely to win. And that's not that much different from dueling. Why did we have those sorts of, of things? Was this just a way of benefiting the, the wealthier I mean, did that somehow play out? If you were wealthy, you could afford better armor and therefore you're more likely to win a, a trial by, by fire, so to speak? Mm. I mean, it was a surprise for a start. It was a surprise to find that the same sort of techniques were used so widely throughout the world. You know, that's the only chapter in the book where which doesn't have a geographical or a temporal focus because it's one of the few issues which do seem to me to be widespread. And yeah, I was as surprised as you when I, when I looked at this and I saw this. I think what's key to it is the problem of finding the truth. And of course, there's always going to be a problem with finding the truth in some cases. You know, he said, she said, there weren't any other witnesses. How are we ever going to know what happened? Did someone intend to kill or was it self-defense? 
did somebody consent really or did they not? You know, these problems are actually universal. They could have just flipped a coin, right? Wouldn't that? Well. That would work, right? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think there was always a feeling that they had to somehow get to get to a sort of justice. There had to be some form of doing the right thing anyway. So what was really common was, well, I suppose oaths and ordeals. Those are the two, the, the two techniques that people seem to have come up with all throughout the world. So, you know, an oath is invocation of the divine. And, you know, it's, it's easy to forget how important and effective that would have been through really most societies throughout history. You know, if you swear on, you know, the Bible or you invoke the gods, whoever they are, to be your witness, you're telling the truth. That's a pretty important thing to do and something people won't do lightly. And in practice, they were surrounded by, you know, rituals. You'd have to go to the church or the temple and there would be the sort of the, the frescoes on the wall showing, you know, where you go to in hell if you, <laughs> if you sin too much. There was lots of drama surrounding these things. But very often what the procedure was, was you only, could only swear an oath you were thought to be oath-worthy if you were trustworthy enough. And that generally meant being high enough status. So not necessarily wealthy, but really high enough status to, to be trusted. So the ordeal was the alternative largely for the people who couldn't be trusted, the people to lower down the hierarchy. So whereas with the oath, the witness themselves, or the parties who were who swearing would invoke the divine and there was sort of the, the threat of sanction if they were not telling the truth. For the people who weren't deemed to be oathworthy, the whole process by which they, you know, held hot iron in their hands and their hands were bandaged up and then they inspected it to see if it healed or not, or they were dunked in water and did they float or not. All those processes invoked the divine to sort of give a direct sign to everybody else as to whether or not the person was, was guilty or innocent. And of course, those processes could be ma manipulated. You know, somebody had to look at the hand and say, that's healed or not. Somebody had to say, oh, yes, that person has floated or no, they haven't floated. So in reality, a lot of these, these processes um, depended on the local people, the local priest maybe, or the local community, who probably had a fairly good idea of whether or not the person was telling the truth or not. So it was in many ways a popularity contest, right? So if you had made enemies, right, in the community, if you were, you know, kind of like with gossip, right? So if you hadn't forged relationships with enough people, then you're, you're probably going to lose this thing. It's, yes, <laughs> probably, depending on the community and its coherence, absolutely. I was just going to say, behind it all seems to be, and here I'm relying very much on the work of uh, James Whitman, the kind of comparative historical lawyer, um, who wrote a very good book about uh, reasonable doubt. And he was saying behind all of this, there was often the fear on the part of the judges of what would happen to them if they got it wrong and convicted the wrong person, particularly if they put the wrong person to death. You know, they were worried about divine retribution. So very often these processes were designed to allow judges to convict and to punish with, with certainty because there'd been a divine sign. Julian Tett wrote a book recently about anthropology and she said, you know, part of it's about understanding the other, but part of it's about understanding yourself better, right? But I always think about when I read Persian letters by Montesquieu, right, and how powerful that was, because even though it was 
completely fictional. It was, what does the world look like? What does Europe look like, right? Through, through a Persian lens. And a lot of the stuff that people took for granted looked ridiculous, right? And so how does being, taking an anthropological perspective help you to better understand the, the traditions that you yourself participated in and, and practiced as, as an attorney? And do you think that this should be a part of legal education, right? I, I don't know, probably got to be less than 1% of lawyers get exposed to legal anthropology. Probably less than 10%, at least in the U.S., get exposed even to non-U.S. or non-Anglo legal systems, right? Is this something that can improve the, the practice of law and the legal process? Does it make you a better lawyer, do you think, to have just a modicum of exposure to legal anthropology? I think the benefit is sort of fairly indirect. I mean, I don't think we should be going around to different parts of the world to try to learn techniques which we can apply to our own legal system. But understanding how, I suppose, specific our own legal system is and how recent it is in the terms of world history and how we can't understand that has been the culmination of 4,000 years of history, you know, the best legal system we've got or we could ever had. It's just something that happens to be here now. And there are all sorts of other traditions that have developed in different places. I think that is, is important so that certainly those who come into a position of being able to influence the shape of a legal system are aware that this is not the only answer there is. This is, this is not the only possible system. And there are two particular areas where I think having a sense of the way other people approach disputes and law is important. And one is when dealing with transnational aspects. You know, the fact is that you know, a lot of international lawyers worry about, is there enforcement? Are things democratic? They apply the ideals, the ideologies of the modern nation state to the sorts of legal processes that develop transnationally because they have to, because they're transnational problems. And I think it's important not to just assume that everything has got to work like state law works. It's important to allow that there can be effective ways of approaching disputes and, and making laws, which might work in different ways. So that's one area. And the other area is in that of sort of local local systems of justice, which would still very much, much continue. So there's been the law and development movement. There's been the movement for transitional justice, you know, to try and roll out better forms of law and justice throughout the world. Again, often the assumption is that we in the West know what we're doing. We've got it right. We've got the best systems. We've got the right principles. Those sorts of programs can run roughshod over local dynamics. There are lots of case studies of, of people who've looked at transitional justice programs in the aftermath of conflict. And of course, everyone wants to help those who've suffered from conflict to receive justice and so on. But if those programs don't reflect and correspond with local dynamics, they'll never work. So there's a two, two areas in which I think just an awareness of the, the many alternatives there are is important for all of us. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, right now the law expands its sphere sort of continuously. Right? I think the, the default response of someone who's involved in a dispute today would be to summon the power of the state, right? And, you know, the, the, I guess the restorative justice movement is a movement to try to let people within the community help 
resolve some disputes and create reconciliation. Do we under underappreciate and undervalue these other non-state institutions and their role in resolving disputes and, and maintaining the peace and creating harmony? I think often we do, absolutely. But also sometimes I think we underestimate how difficult it is to develop those institutions from scratch. We can't just take a model that's worked somewhere else and assume it's going to work in a different context. You know, it's all about understanding the local dynamics, which are different. Who are the power holders? Who do people listen to? Who has respect? What are the tensions in the community? What are the prejudices? You know, all of that comes into the effectiveness of any sort of local systems. But yes, I mean, there are lots of good restorative justice programs that have been tried out. And you know, we've got to try them and see, really. And if something works, support it. Well, Fernanda, thank you so much for joining me. Rule of laws, it's definitely not a Whig history. Right? It's, it's really sympathetic to all the different legal traditions that you articulate. And don't forget, of course, these other books, the Anthropology of Law and the book on Ladakh. And I've also got some wonderful articles that I read in Oxford Journal and elsewhere. So thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.